this is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. Hello and welcome to Corbynism The Postmortem, a new limited podcast series investigating Corbynism and the impact Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as Labour leader had on British politics. I'm your host, Oz Katerji, and before I introduce my guests, I'd like to talk about what we are seeking to explore with this series. On September 12th, 2015, Jeremy Corbyn, the man who had represented Islington North as MP for over 30 years, was elected as leader of the Labour Party, a decision that, for better or for worse, would fundamentally alter the course of British political history. Corbyn's victory sent shockwaves through the political establishment. A lifelong socialist and anti-imperialist campaigner, Jeremy Corbyn was a stalwart of the near-dormant radical left wing of the Labour Party a wing that had been sidelined since Michael Foote's crushing defeat by Margaret Thatcher in 1983. The same year, Corbyn was elected into Parliament for the very first time. On December 12, 2019, history repeated itself as the Labour Party, now firmly refashioned in Jeremy Corbyn's image after denying Theresa May a majority in 2017, was humiliated by Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, who had returned to Parliament with a 79-seat majority. Speaking shortly after he was returned to Parliament as MP for Islington North, the Labour leader announced he would stand down. Today, in the aftermath of that defeat, we will assess what went wrong for Jeremy Corbyn, the man, and for Corbynism, the movement, as we interrogate what lies ahead for the future of British politics and for the future of the Labour Party. As I'm sure is true with many of the guests we'll be talking to throughout the series, Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party had a profound impact on my view of British politics. While to many people in Britain in 2015, Corbyn was an unknown quantity, his brand of foreign policy activism as chair of the campaign group Stop the War Coalition had led to bitter disagreements with journalists and activists covering foreign policy, myself included. Those disagreements were often down to irreconcilable differences with regards to how we each view the world, and ultimately, Labour's failure to adequately address many of these concerns led to the downfall of the project. In trying to conduct a post-mortem of Corbynism, I seek not only to understand the reasons Corbynism failed at the ballot box, but also to understand the political conditions that led to its ascension in the first place, and what lessons can be learned from that for the future. I hope that over the course of this series, my guests and I can also explore our own relationships with Corbynism, to reflect on the things that we got right, the things that we got wrong, and what impact the end of Corbyn's political project will have on the country as a whole. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the first guests of the series for a discussion about one of the defining issues for understanding how Corbynism became utterly toxic as a brand, Labour's institutional anti-Semitism crisis. First, we have Adam Wagner, a barrister acting in the EHRC investigation into Labour anti-Semitism for a complainant. We have Adam Langleben, former Labour councillor in Barnet, and Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland. Hello, thanks for joining me on the show. Hi there. Thanks. Thanks. So I'm going to start with Adam Langleben. You were there from the early days of Corbynism. Can you talk us through Corbyn's election as Labour leader and the events that led up to it? So, so du during the 2015 leadership contest, so uh, let's start before that, Ed Miliband lost. Um, uh, 
I, I, I played a part in that loss and the fact that I not, I voted for Ed Miliband, uh, something I now deeply re- regret because I think that's that led us to this point. Um, uh, but Ed Miliband lost. We went into a Labour leadership contest. At the same time, there was a mayoral selection contest for London. So I was working on Tessa Jow's campaign to be, be mayor of London. And Tessa started off as the clear frontrunner uh, to win the selection against uh, Sadiq Khan and David Lammy and Diane Abbott. Um, and because it was running consecutively alongside the Labour leadership contest, I kind of had a front row seat on how the vote shifted throughout. Um, and it became clear to me that not only were people joining the Labour Party from the hard left, but also there was, an ap- that there was a serious appetite for a, for a, a fresh start. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn represented that fresh start, primarily, I think, because he was up against people who'd looked and sounded boring and tired. Um, but the consequence of that on the contest I was helping run uh, for Tessa was Sadiq was able to, to place himself as sort of the semi-Corbyn candidate at the time, although I don't think he is, and I, I think he would reject that, and I think it's probably unfair for me, for me to even say that now. Um, uh, but about three or four weeks into the contest, it became clear, where, whereby the first few weeks calling up members Tessa was way ahead, we felt it would be the same for another moderate candidate. And then suddenly, I think it was actually around the time of the votes on benefit changes. Um, and the moment that I think Harriet Harman issued the whip to vote with the government on those changes, um, that was when everything changed. Everything. Um, and the membership and the new people who joined um, decided they wanted to completely break from everyone who, who was already there. Um, so, uh, so that was sort of when you could feel something was changing. And then over the course of that summer, um, history was written and Jeremy Corbyn won a landslide and everything changed. Jonathan, before he became a frontrunner, what was your reaction to the campaign and to Jeremy Corbyn putting himself forward? Well, I do remember very well the feeling that this was just going to be another going through the motions run by the campaign group. Remember, in 2010... Diane Abbott had been the candidate and I think came bottom of the poll. Um, Then earlier in the Gordon Brown period, Gordon Brown in in some ways did not want a contest to take over from Tony Blair. But what they thought there might be was that he would just, you know, crush with a sort of light sweep of his fingers, um, John McDonnell. And McDonnell couldn't get the nominations. So that never happened. But they did do once a TV debate, which is, you know, you have to be a nerd among nerds to have seen that but there was a tv debate in 2007 so this felt like it was the ritual candidacy of the far left and in fact i'm told um that in the meeting of the campaign group they sat around thinking well somebody's going to have to do it and mcdonald said he couldn't do it because of heart trouble and diane abbott said well i did it last time and anyway she wanted to have a go at the london mayoralty and they sat around and then jeremy corbyn himself said well i'll do it and I'm told people sort of look to their feet slightly sort of awkwardly, a bit, you know, and who wants to tell him that obviously it can't be him? Because he was known even among that group, and I'm told by there were 20 people in there, and I've been told by one of the ones members, people who was in the room, that he was, of, you know, sort of the fourth choice, uh, even then among 20 people. And they thought, well, you know, so, OK, if he wants to do it. And the reason, by the way, they were hesitant was they, among his fellow campaign group people, they didn't think his reputation was as being some, uh, was of being somebody who wasn't that bright. 
uh, means well, but not the sharpest pencil in the box. And so they sort of shrugged and went, all right, okay, you do it. And in fact, Diane Abbott announced it before they were fully ready. They were some people there who still wanted to think about it. And she tweeted, Jeremy Corbyn is the campaign group candidate. And so then he was. But there were some who were ready to try and talk him out of it because they didn't think it would end well. My reaction at the time was, okay, this is the ritual candidate. And the, to the limited uh, extent I ever th had thought about him, I was aware of him. And I think this is important. Anybody who has any kind of even passing interest in the Israel-Palestine issue knew of Jeremy Corbyn simply because he would be on the platform at any meeting, no matter how small. So, you know, if it was Enfield Socialists for Palestine, you would have three names of people you'd never heard of, and the fourth would be Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, I'm sure he had a season ticket to Friends House. You know, he was there. I would, I would think it's not an exaggeration to say he probably did three or four Israel or Palestine-related meetings a week. For, for 20 years. I think it's, you know, if it's not that number, it will be somewhere close to that. So if you were aware of this issue, you were aware of him. And particularly, and I want to make this clear, there are lots of people who are very interested in Israel-Palestine. You know, Richard Burden MP, Peter Hayne, who nobody would have any kind of problem with because you know they are just really principal campaigners for Palestinian rights, which, you know, I would say I would want to include myself in that kind of category. Corbyn, you knew, was different because of the kinds of people he had appeared with. So he was somebody you were just aware of in your peripheral vision, that if there was some sort of dodgy character around who had a bit of a dodgy record on Jewish issues, anti-Semitism, if there's going to be an event, you know, the lineup would very often include Jeremy Corbyn. And that was the level of awareness I had of him. I won't pretend I thought from the beginning that he would win. But I think what Adam says is right, which is it's not as if it was a shock come September. By June, July, I remember you know, Guardian meetings where we were saying, unless something happens, it's going to be Jeremy Corbyn. So we, you know, you knew that the ground was shifting. And for, as I say, those of us who have had an eye on this territory for going back to the 80s, we knew of him. Adam Wagner, can you tell me about your first impressions of Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership aspirations? I don't remember knowing who he was until until he, um, and I'm, not, I'm probably not as politically switched on as either Adam or Jonathan, um, but I don't remember in 2015 having heard of him before he stood up. And I do keep a sort of peripheral peripheral eye on Israel-Palestine issues, but I just don't, I mean, maybe I'd, in the back of my mind, heard of him. But I remember reading about him and thinking, I don't know very much about this guy, I better read up on him. No, but that, I mean, that that's great to hear, because, it, it, you know, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not just, uh, uh, you know, I, I was quite familiar with him, because obviously Israel-Palestine is something that's quite close to my heart. So I was familiar with him, but I, I was aware that much for much of the country, he was seen as this kind of new, fresh face, even though he'd been in politics since 1983. Adam Langlebem, can you tell me about when you first started getting worried about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the first inklings of it? I think... Anti-Semitism is a consequence of their politics and it's the consequence of decisions that they, that they took. So I think to, to really think about where did anti-Semitism first start with this, you actually have to look at the decisions that were taken. So um, the first decision actually, and the blame, I think, lies with the moderates who ran the Labour Party um, before Jeremy, in, in the run-up to Jeremy Corbyn's election, in that... By creating an atmosphere whereby anyone who had once tweeted that they voted Green was expelled or suspended or the membership was revoked from the Labour Party, it enabled um, a conspiracy theory to develop around the idea that the Labour establishment are trying to stop people from taking part in Labour Party democracy. And I think 
that was the sort of root as to how sort of this anti-Semitic consp- conspiratorial thinking started in the party and since then it simply ballooned so everything became a conspiracy from that moment uh, and it was inevitable that it was going to eventually end up with the Jews although it, just, it didn't take very long um, I think the first moment really was where, where it became clear that there was a massive problem was a year later during the Owen Smith challenge whereby um, Owen Smith was essentially being demonised um, as being essentially a, a Zionist um, controlled puppet trying to take out Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that was sort of the, the, the first key moments where there was something big happening. I think f- for me, and something we, we may touch on, actually the first moment I thought Jeremy Corbyn himself has a problem was when he made some comments about Jonathan Friedland. Uh, in the Vice documentary. So, Jonathan, you were one of the first mainstream journalists on the centre-left to flag up the problem with anti-Semitism that had been developing under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And in March 2016, you wrote an article called Labour and the Left Have an Anti-Semitism Problem, with the strapline, Under Jeremy Corbyn, the party has attracted many activists with views hostile to Jews. Its leaders must see why this matters. I've got a clip here that we can take a listen to of what Jeremy Corbyn said about you following the publication of that article, which was filmed in a Vice documentary called Jeremy Corbyn, The Outsider. The one thing I've learned over the past um, six months or so is how shallow, facile and ill-informed many of the supposedly well-informed major commentators are in our media. They shape a debate that is baseless and narrow. In a conversation with Seamus Milne, his head of strategy. It's clear Jeremy sees an article from a leading political columnist as the latest attack. Only the big negative today is Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian. Jonathan Friedland article in The Guardian. Um, It's uh, it's anti-Semitism. Labour has a problem with anti-Semitism under Corbyn. Utterly disgusting, subliminal nastiness. Whole lot of it, you know. He's not in a good way at all, um, but he's kind of, he seems kind of obsessed with me, you know. So, um, first things first, how did you feel when you first heard him say that? Well, it's very funny you've got me on this, because I have made a point of never saying a word about this. I never tweeted about it when it happened. I've never written about it. I've never mentioned it. So this is the first time I've ever talked about oh, it. Oh, it's a, a first. It's a first. I didn't, I, I, I quite, why I decided not to do that, but I, but I didn't. Um, I was quite shaken by it. I mean, a lot of people, you know, the first I knew about it was, it was, I remember it was during the children's half term and uh, we, we were away and I woke up later than normal and there was a text that said, badge of honour, exclamation mark. And then there were several more like that in that vein. I was still, was I, that from your Mossad hand? <laughs> no, that was from a, a Guardian colleague. And um, badge of honour. And I thought, what are they referring to? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? Um... I realise some people think that those two categories of Mossad hand I was and Guardian say, colleague. I mean, I mean, might, I, might it wasn't be the same really thing. a denial, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, there is no Mossad handle. No, I got got the that message, and I thought, what are they referring to? Uh, and I, you know, then then eventually somebody said, look, is this Vice film? And I watched it. I was quite shaken by it for a few reasons. I mean, the first is that he's in conversation with a former colleague of mine, uh, Seamus Milne, and uh, Seamus and I had sat next to each other at The Guardian for 10, 15 years. We were, you know, very friendly. And so it was quite unsettling to hear, I think when you heard there in that exchange, 
it can only be understood that Seamus Milne has said to Jeremy Corbyn, he's not a good guy. And, you know, we had been in each other's homes and known each other for a long time. So that was a bit of a shock. I found it, even at the time, quite funny, this idea that somebody who's leader of the opposition thinks that if a columnist is writing about them, they must have a personal obsession with them, as if, you know, you should pay no more interest to them than you would in, you know, some local neighbour. But the main thing about it was the piece in question was so mild. I'm almost embarrassed how timid it is actually now. All I do is very gently say, of course, I spell out, nobody's saying Jeremy Corbyn himself as an anti-Semite. It's just we've noticed there are these few things and it'd be very easy for you to deal with them. It's almost sort of unctuously hesitant. Um, it's a tone that I would then change very much, but it's, it's just timidly flagging up there is a potential problem here if you you know you can deal with it now and then it won't be a problem anymore and to have that response utterly disgusting subliminal lastness is so telling that actually becomes a part of the sort of case file against Corbyn because it shows that even when he was warned that there was a problem his reaction was not to be outraged by the problem but to be outraged by the person sounding the alarm and the last thing to say on it is in parallel in the same program he um, is he's confronted with evidence of something Ken Livingstone has said, when Ken Livingstone has sounded off about Hitler support Zionism and all this, and he's word the and he's pushed to say something condemnatory about it. The the strongest language he can manage is to say Ken has made some inappropriate remarks, maybe. So actual anti-Semitism is perhaps inappropriate. Sounding the alarm about anti-Semitism is utterly disgusting, subliminal nastiness. We can deconstruct a little bit more the word use of the word subliminal which I think is a fascinating word to have used, as if Jews don't say things overtly, they say them in a kind of the language of the, the hypnotist, that it's somehow subliminal. Uh, so that's fascinating. And then the last thing I would say about it is it was all in, the, in the, the piece that he was so frantic about. All I was doing was, as an aside, was mentioning that he himself had had a few things in his back catalogue that he needed to address and that he could address, which actually I'd written about even the very week he was elected. And, and those were the episodes of, you know, Paul Eisen, who's a Holocaust denier. And most people ran a mile from Paul Eisen when Paul Eisen outed himself as a Holocaust denier in 2008. Only one person kept on going to Paul Eisen organised events when everyone else didn't want to be in the same room. And that was Jeremy Corbyn. So there were the, the signs were there, but I very hesitantly and mildly put them together. And you heard his response. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, hosted by me, Oz Katerji. If you'd like to support the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Adam Wagner, a big part of the problem with the crisis seemed to be that it got further exacerbated by the culture of denial surrounding the party. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn's personal dismissals of the problem contributed to this culture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, well, there's a a couple of things to say about that. The first thing is, I think that one of the features of this entire issue has been that denial is a kind of part of the centrifuge which creates more anti-Semitism. Because the, there's, a, there's a premise underlying most of the denials. And the premise is that the Jewish community is, is making this up and exaggerating and doing it for its own sort of insidious reasons whether because of this, of its in, being in cahoots with the state of Israel and therefore it's all about Corbyn's Palestinian advocacy or because they're money-grabbing, you know, um, tax-avoiding, um, 
people who are frightened of a socialist government. But either way, that in itself creates an anti-Semitic environment. I think it's at the heart, in, in a way, of what's happened and why it's gone from a few... Why, why it's uh, accelerated and, and, be, and become something much bigger than a few anti-Semitic posts on Facebook or you know, uh, on, on Twitter. It's this atmosphere of denialism, um, you know, with, and, and, and these organizations like Jewish Voice for Labour and Labour Against the Witch Hunt, which are set up to serve that very purpose, to create this atmosphere of denial. Um, I think uh, uh, in, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn, he's always set the tone of the movement and people have looked at, you know, it's quite a personality driven movement. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's cultish, although it, like a lot of political movements, it displays some features of cultishness, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is that if you watch, I mean, what was interesting about the, the interview where he what was interesting about the interview where he mentioned Jonathan was that he was being filmed and he knew he was being filmed. It wasn't caught off camera, you know, on, on an off-cuff remote. He knew he was being filmed and he said it anyway. And I think that there's a whole range of other interviews he's given. And now, if you cut out all of the times he's reading off a script, so the face-to-camera face videos, all the articles that, that, you know, his team write for him and that are obviously written by his team. And if you only look at his interviews, what he thinks is very clear, and I've tried to you know, give attention to those. You know, when he talks about Luciana Berger being threatened at a party conference and Jon Snow is saying, you know, here's a picture of her with the police. And he says, nobody, nobody's under any threat at, the, at this conference, nobody. Um, and over and over again, you, see, you saw it finally with Andrew Neil, and I think that was the kind of straw that broke the donkey's back for many people in the public, where he just so obviously thinks this is all a media concoction. He thinks it's a Jewish concoction. He thinks it's something which has been, for some reason... Um, exacerbated because of an agenda against him, and that all you know brings it full circle back to the interview about about Jonathan. Really, Adam Langleben. A lot of our followers from America and other places are going to compare what's happening in the UK with some of the accusations that have been aimed at Senator Bernie Sanders. My personal feeling is that they are very different situations, and most of the attacks against Sanders on this issue seem to be totally baseless and made in bad faith. How would you compare the two? I think there's very little similarity between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn um, at all. I think that both movements like to feed on each other um, as examples of success or failure. Um, but the, Bernie Sanders is, is, is far more mainstream than, than Jeremy Corbyn in lots of respects. Um, equally, the problems that the Labour Party have with anti-Semitism, whilst parts of it are definitely transferable and parts of it we, we are we have been seeing similarities with with grassroots programs and initiatives in the states um it, it's rooted in, in in a very british anti-semitism of the british hard left i'm not quite sure but you've got the same um apparatus for it to, to sort of take off in the states in the same way that it has in the uk so what do you think british anti-semitism on the left is like what are the unique sort of elements of it? i think it's an odd curiosity of white old men who think that they're educated, um, who think that they're anti-racist, um, and, uh, and therefore have zero ability whatsoever to spot it. 
I so want to come in on this. I think uh, this is completely fascinating to me. I, I completely, first of all, I agree that the parallel between Sanders and Corbyn is non-existent. In fact, I've co- covered Corbyn, um, Sanders in 2016 in New Hampshire and wrote a piece afterwards saying, trying to channel Lloyd Benson to Dan Quayle, you know, Jeremy, you're no Senator Bernie Sanders, because there's no comparison. It, first of all, just an ability and charisma and all those things. Obviously on Israel, Bernie Sanders is a very proud identifying Jew and is supportive of Israel's right to exist. But the uh, main thing I think is Sanders is obsessed with domestic policy about the economy and about healthcare and those things. And foreign policy is a real gap in Bernie Sanders. The absolute opposite is true. I mean, for, Jeremy Corbyn loves this thing about being the foreign minister of the left. That was his reputation. But he and people close to him, a lot of them, you know, barely bothered with t- talking about or writing about it or campaigning on the NHS or social care. This is what got Jeremy Corbyn out of bed in the morning was Israel number one and then Van- you know, Israel-Palestine, Venezuela, you know, imperialism, Iran. America, Iran. These are the things that are, he's in politics for. And I think that became a big miscalculation through the whole period. And we're obviously going to come on to later periods. But there were moments where people thought, why is he not, just for his own political self-interest, closing this down? And John McDonnell, I think, felt like that. Like, just say whatever is needed to make this thing go away. Like the IRA... Um, definition and then but as somebody who has met you know known them and known some of his closest aides for a very long time I never thought they would close this down because this is why they're in politics that time when they met for the IRA meeting in the September after the so-called summer of anti-semitism everybody in the room NEC allies of Corbyn were thinking just make this go away Corbyn turns up with this page and a half new definition anyone normal is thinking you're mad stop spending energy on this but he does it because this is why he's in politics. Almost forget NHS and social care, railways. I'm not interested in that. This is what I'm in politics for. There's another example of that, which is just literally the first week of the ca- in the first week of the campaign, um, Labour spent the first week talking about Bolivia and what was going. And the, for, for the average person living in West Bromwich East, <laughs> like like they wouldn't have a clue. I I, I think I have a sort of decent knowledge of international politics and I haven't got a clue about what's going on in Bolivia but but you are right and I just wanted to mention your point about English middle class because I think that is really right Uh, I've mentioned particularly a couple of times the point about Israel-Palestine I want to be really clear nobody has a problem with somebody being a Palestinian rights campaigner I think often they try to say Labour, Corbynite people, oh, your problem is that Jeremy is just too passionate of support of the Palestinian rights. No. Hence my exemption uh, and, in fact, admiration for Richard Burden, Peter Hayne, these longtime pro-Palestinian campaigners. The beef people had with Jeremy Corbyn was almost nothing to do with Israel-Palestine. It was often quite old-school English country house anti-Semitism. The moment when he said some of these Zionists, no matter how long they're born here, or even if they're, you know, even no matter how long they've lived here, even if they're born here, they don't understand English irony. There wasn't a Jew in the country who hadn't heard at some point, you know, if they're a woman, the boyfriend's aged father, or the girlfriend's aged father, who you're you're there the, at breakfast the first weekend you're staying with them, who makes a remark like that that makes you feel hot around your neck because he's saying you don't really belong here. You know, uh, even if you're born here, um, the English irony, it's a tiny thing. But my phone started buzzing during that TV debate when he said Epstein, because we all know people like that old English sort of posh people who foreignize Jewish names. And he's such a type, Jeremy Corbyn. He's so much like a sort of blue blazered country club, 70 year old 
grew up in Shropshire, anti-Semite. And I once said this at a Guardian morning conference, and I said, there's nothing left wing about his anti-Semitism. He's like Farage anti-Semitism. You can imagine how, how well that went down. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I thought about him. I thought, I know what type you are. And they, and the, you know, that those people who listen to any questions and sort of say people, Jewish people's names, uh, Goldstein or whatever, you know, it's a particular type, and he is absolutely it. There's nothing cool and nothing left wing about it. He's just a creature of the public school manor house that he was brought up in, upbringing. And I think Jews saw that in him, even as everyone else around the country thought he was Che Guevara. We thought, no, you're not. You're that bloke in the 19th hole at the golf course who doesn't really like Jews very much. Adam, how did that start affecting um, you on the doorstep when you were talking to uh, Jews in your constituency? So uh, the first sort of major electoral test was 2016 and Sadiq Khan's election for the London mayoralty. And, and it was a live issue at that, at that point in time. And people were beginning to raise it. But the, the swing voters had already sort of at that point moved away. To be fair, most of them had moved away in 2015, a year earlier. Um, the difference was people, those same voters who, who had already moved away from the Labour Party had begun to raise this as one of their issues. So bringing them back was not, was not going to happen. Um, however, in 2016, the, the Jewish Labour vote was still sizable and, and, and it held. Um, and... Uh, Sadiq Khan won the election. He didn't win in Barnet, but he didn't lose by a huge amount. And, th- and that's quite quite important. And it's because Sadiq was clear about identifying the issue. And and from from the moment it became a, a public issue, um, dedicated himself to, to, to being on the right side uh, of history, I guess. Um, f- going on a year and things progressively got worse. And it got to the point by 2018, in my election, whereby you you could no longer knock on a, a door um, with a mezuzah, with a, uh, a Jewish scripture on it, um, without either the person opening the door bursting into tears about about being politically homeless, or being sworn at, or being called a racist, uh, or being chased off of their front garden. Um, it was the most depressing experience of my life, and I, I never want to do that ever again. Um, Adam W., can you uh, tell me about when you first started to think that there might be a legal problem of discrimination here in the Labour Party? I mean, I, I got involved in this issue, I, I, don't, I don't really remember when it was. It feels like a, th- a thousand years ago, but I guess it was a couple of years ago. It was fairly late, late in the day. And the reason was, I probably like, I, I think there was, there's a, if you're not a sort of political obsessive and you're how quickly you buttoned onto this kind of issue was probably depending on where you were in the political spectrum. So if you were on the right, I think your confirmation bias would immediately start. You'd start seeing it and seeing and, and reading the, the criticisms. But I think I probably, I probably, maybe I read one of Jonathan's articles um, and I started to look at it and I thought, I realised there wasn't really anybody... Um, or at least there were very few people on the Jewish left, and I consider myself very much on the Jewish left, who was looking at this issue from the perspective of not not of of, of understanding the movement and why the movement was so valuable and exciting, and also 
couldn't be said, well, you know, they're, they're just sort of right wing on Israel. So that, that's their point. Um, but also as looking at it from a human rights legal perspective, and I, I, I felt like that was something which was missing. And I tried to, through Twitter, start getting involved and start engaging with people and start understanding the issue. And I, I met with lots of people, actually. I met with lots of people in, you know, in my chambers. Um, I spoke to lots of people on the phone from in the movement, from Momentum, from the Labour itself, from Corbyn's office, and just tried my best to understand what was going on. So I thought it needs to be understood. This is really serious if it's true. And as things went on, I realized that there was a real problem, you know, and probably late, much later than Adam and the Jewish people in the Jewish labour movement who've been experiencing it at, at the coalface. Jonathan, you would have had a lot of experience because these are issues you raised through your Guardian column. As a left-leaning British newspaper, many of the people reading it are, of course, Labour supporters. What was the reaction like towards you for discussing the crisis from some of Corbyn's very online fans and from pro-Corbyn blue-tick media pundits? Was there a culture of hostility and denial that contributed to the atmosphere that we found ourselves in? That's interesting. It was definitely, um, you know, tough in that period. It's uh, won't pretend it wasn't. Um, there was a lot of hostility, a lot of the uh, assumption that it was all made up, that it was smears, um, that it was uh, said with ulterior motives, obviously, you know, direction of a foreign power, all of the, that stuff. Blue ticks, I would say they tended to be fairly respectful. I was pretty restrained. I mean, that's the thing. I think other people were really uh, out there and pushing the boundaries. I was very, very careful. I often really couch things tremendously cautiously, benefit of the doubt. And I used to have this formulation that Jeremy Corbyn is not an anti-Semite. He just looks past anti-Semitism when it comes from a source he deems ideologically sound. And I stuck to that formulation for quite a long time and eventually sort of stopped using it because I thought we're slightly into walks like a duck, quacks like a duck territory now. So it became, it felt redundant. But no, I felt as if... Um, if I'm truthful, I think there was quite a lot of people, as you mentioned, blue ticks, wanted to be sort of respectful to the position. And because I, th I hope that, you know, I'm thought of as a fairly sort of cautious kind of, you know, not kind of wild source and commentator. So people would say things like, if what you were saying were true, it would be of so desperately serious. Of course, we would all have to resign the Labour Party. And so these are very serious questions. But in the end, they're not really. You know, we don't, in the end, it's, it's we just on, it falls on the right side of the line. So there was a lot of that kind of, this is awful, I'm so ashamed, so embarrassed, but I'm sticking with it, you know, because I think it would have been too much cognitive dissonance for them to say, here is racism, I am an anti-racist, yet I am tolerating this. So they would have, one of those bits would have to go, and usually the way it would be is, that's not really racism, there's a, there's a reason, you know, the English irony example, they, they were identified as Zionists, not Jews, and therefore somehow it's not quite as bad. People would try and find ways out of it. They didn't really want to have to confront it. So that was, you know, that was the best version. The more, the, the more uglier version was just to become this sort of lightning rod for Corbynite rage at the mainstream media, Corbynite rage at The Guardian. And I have to say, I think the cue for it was that Vice video, because truth is about Corbyn is he very rarely speaks negatively about anyone he doesn't re he never really attacked Theresa May or Boris Johnson you know when he, when he was next to the melting ice sculpture he wouldn't say anything negative about it one of the only people he's ever been actually negative about in terms of really getting the vocabulary out you know utterly disgusting 
was me. And so therefore that did sort of paint a sign on my back where people thought St. Jeremy has allowed us to slag off this guy. And so I think a few people did do that. And because I was giving them news that they didn't want to hear, they wanted to believe this man was some kind of saintly figure who had come to redeem the country. And I was up there saying, but just look who he's been friends with. Look at what he's ignored. Look what he's condoned. Look what he's never done. And just last thing, one thing is the most striking thing about this whole period is he never, ever called out any of this stuff. It would have been so easy to do one little quote tweet of a horrible anti-Semitic tweet by someone with three followers and to say, I'm disgusted by this, not in my name. To my knowledge, he never once did that. It was the smallest thing. So therefore, I think people didn't want to be told it and they took out some of that stress and angst on me. I think I think Jonathan's just touched on the key the key problem with Corbynism, if there is a thing called Corbynism, which is it's completely and utterly vacuous. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as Corbynism because Corbyn never said anything of substance. He enabled whatever he says to be so vague that it allows his supporters to, to, to decide whatever they want and to give his supporters permission to say and do whatever they want because there was no red lines. He wasn't saying yes or no to anything. And, and actually, his silence... Um, and his cult following is what is what enabled the growth of conspiracy theory and anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, hosted by me, Oz Katerji. If you would like to support the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Oz Earlier this year, it was announced that Labour is being investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission for potential violations of discrimination law. The Jewish Labour movement prepared a 58-page long submission to the EHRC cataloguing the evidence, which was leaked to me and other journalists from The Times and the BBC, which I would later publish a redacted version of. It is an utterly damning read that spells real trouble for Labour if the allegations are proven. Adam Langleben, I believe you helped write part of that submission. Can you tell me some of the most egregious examples that you came across and talk about why this document was created? So I think I think just, so. What was published during the election campaign was the closing submission uh, of the Jewish Labour movement. This has actually been a year, a year and a half in the works, um, and it originally came from a submission, um, thousands of pages long, um, coming from hundreds of Labour Party members who've been affected directly from anti-Semitism in the party, coming from staff um, who'd spoken to us, coming from MPs. Um, and that initial document, alongside other submissions to the Equality and Human Rights Commission from the Campaign Against Antisemitism, uh, amongst others, is what triggered them to, to, to decide that the, the threshold had been reached to hold an investigation. Uh, and it's important to note that the investigation is the highest level of investigation the HRC can pursue, and it's only ever been launched once. And the BMP is the example everyone's using, but actually the Metropolitan Police is the only other time the, the, that, that level of investigation has been has been launched against uh, uh, an organisation. I'll give um, uh, an example, um, which um, was a young man who who was working in in the leader's office, um, who um, who described to us that the moment that certain individuals who may or may not have shared an office with Jonathan Friedland, um, the moment they found out that this young man was Jewish, he faced uh, an inquisition about his views on the Middle East, um, simply by virtue of being a Jew. Um, now, no one else from any other faith or race, racial background was, was asked to prove themselves in that way. 
uh, and I think sort of it's a really good example as to actually the worldview of 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 the leadership um, and and now large swathes of the movement is if you're a Jew you've got to prove you're the right kind of Jew you're their kind of Jew and if you if you if you can't prove that then actually you are the enemy. Adam Wagner, can you talk me through the legal side of the JLM submission? And if the allegations are proven, what do you think it means for Labour's position on this? Legally, the thing to understand about the investigation is that it, the powers that the Equality and Human Rights Commission have are to investigate breaches of the Equality Act in, from, a, from a person, so that can be a, an individual or, or a company or a, or a political party. Um, and that, So they'll be looking at have people been discriminated against directly or indirectly? Have people been harassed within the legal definition? And have people been victimised, which means to be treated worse because they've raised a complaint, which you know in the Labour Party has been a major issue. And and you know the the thing about the the JLM submission, which I read in detail, was I I think almost none of it was new. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean a lot of it had come out in the past couple of years because they've been they've been very public issues. They've been fully addressed in the press. The Labour Party had responded, usually saying this is all you know we're doing everything we can to to fight anti-Semitism or whatever. The, or saying these are you know um, disaffected uh, people with grudges to bear, and that's why they're raising these complaints. So. Uh, almost all of what was in there what was what was useful about it in terms of the period it came in it was as it stitched it all together as a long grim you know very difficult to read story which for a lot of people who haven't followed this obsessively like i'm you know with no disrespect intended probably the four people in this room have it it put it together as in in, in its full dispiriting depressing upsetting way and 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 if you know, if it's if a number of those incidents are shown to have been, you know, discrimination or harassment or victimisation, I think there's a reasonable argument for that. Then I think that that will be very serious for the for the Labour Party. But you know, in in a way, the the law is only is for me following it is behind because what's happened has happened and and, and has caused four years of of hurt and harm. I'm going to come to Jonathan shortly about the reaction, but I just wanted to come back to you, uh, Adam Langleben. Um, uh, again, um, a lot of people listening to this might still be, you know, denying that the, the problem is as serious as some of it's been reported. And um, they'll say, well, lots of it's about Israel-Palestine, you know. But there were some very, very serious examples in that submission, including, I believe, Holocaust deniers yep. standing uh, at, for the Labour Party have been you know, allowed to stand for the Labour Party and the reaction to those Holocaust deniers standing from senior Labour Party figures was, how, how should we put it? It didn't care or it wasn't, it wasn't enough of an issue to stop them from standing. Um, and in some cases, senior figures intervened to try and help the Holocaust deniers remain party members. Um, I, th- I think what's there's the legal argument of of how this goes to the EHRC, but there's a political argument, and and I think, or uh, the the EHRC document, the the, the closing submission of the JLM, what it shows is that these people are liars, like they're hypocrites and they're liars, and they're fundamentally corrupt, and their corrupt politics is what has enabled everything to happen since then. So the the key example I I would say is is um, summer 2018. 
everything's going absolutely crazy in terms of IRA, in terms of the Labour Party saying we're dealing with all these cases, it's all being, it's all fine, it's all being sorted out. We don't interfere. Like the Leaders' Office don't interfere. We sort of take a step back and we let the party processes just happen. Um, but then, and, and I should probably, then we, we, we have a whistleblower in the party, a member of staff, a very, very brave member of staff, who disclosed to us that they were ordered by Jeremy Corbyn's most senior aide to put all of their anti-Semitism cases onto USB sticks in Southside, in the Labour Party HQ, this person who works in the governance unit, to physically march them over um, uh, to Jeremy Corbyn's office in Parliament to then distribute the cases to members of his team to make recommendations as to what should happen to these people. Um, and then was told, never talk about this to your colleagues. And we want you to use personal email addresses to make sure that there's no record whatsoever that's ever happening. Adam W, can you tell me, is that standard procedure for a political party's governance unit? <laughs> um, it, it's standard procedure for an institution where the leadership wants to you know get away with something um and you know, it, it seems like i mean look i i i i i take a slightly different perspective than than adams um I'd, in a way although i don't totally disagree with him but i think of this less as a political you know a, a political culture of the something to do with the far left although it may be i guess i'm not the best person to say that i i look at it from a institutional perspective i've i've been involved in lots of cases over my career involving institutions that have gone horribly wrong um and you i mean the, the one that keeps coming up in my head actually in the relation to this is i, I acted in the mid staffordshire hospital inquiry um for the department of health so I, that was a case where a hospital had for over 400 more people had died in a hospital that had meant to be and and, and this had completely the hospital in staffordshire had just completely broken down and to the extent that people were being told, you know, if you haven't got a glass of water by your, by, we're not, we can't bring a glass of water, but there's a vase next to your bed, why don't you drink from that? And it was kind of, you know, it was unbelievable. And there was an a public inquiry because there was a, in, in not dissimilar to, I'm a lifelong anti-racist, how can I be an anti-Semite? There was a real sense of, well, these are doctors and nurses. None of them wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to go and kill people. You know, apart, unless you're a, 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 a psychopath like, Harold Chipman, you know, a, a complete outline. Most, the vast majority of, of, of medical of nurses and doctors and healthcare assistants want to go and help people and save people. How do you get to, from there to there are, you know, hundreds of people dying, you shouldn't be, people are drinking out of vases, you know, people are being left to rot in their beds. And it comes down, and what the, the inquiry found is it comes down to institutional culture. And institutional culture is not something that it doesn't happen overnight it happens over many years where people aren't um, held to account where the senior management um, start to um, do do bad things and then look after each other rather than um, rather than hold each other to account where there isn't where there is a breakdown of civility and humanity and empathy and all, it's all common um, and I, I looked at the Labour Party and, and, and reading up and I've read in lots of detail about what happened. It just seems to me like an institution which is where the culture has has 
eroded away you know this that there is this lack of empathy there's a everybody's out to get everybody else there's no trust there's no um there's no accountability there's no everything's about who wins and who loses and i think that is my my impression based on very no research at all about why people saw anti-semitism as an issue in this election and and, and i've seen research says that they a lot of people who switched from labor to the Tories saw it as a quite an important issue, something like 17%. 16%. Yeah, so it's 16%. So it was a really important issue, second only to Brexit. And I think what people cottoned on to, I don't think people have a great love for Jewish people. Most people don't know Jewish people, only 250,000 people. I think they saw something which they recognised from the bad work. You know, we've all worked in bad workplaces. We've all worked with abusive bosses. And I think they saw that in the Labour Party and they understood that that's not we don't want these people running the country um, and, and I, that I really believe it is does come down to that. So Jonathan for me personally after publishing the JLM submission I noticed a real change in attitude from certain people that have been really hesitant to acknowledge the problem before. With the mountain of evidence before them it finally seemed to be like that gut punch they denied was coming even after the Panorama documentary which only scratched the surface of the allegations. Do you think the submission marked a turning point in the discourse? And what impact do you think the anti-Semitism issue in Labour had on their electoral chances? Well, first of all, on the EHRC, I might be in a slightly different place from you because I think there were two or three moments in this election campaign where the Jewish and anti-Semitism issues were centre stage. I'm not sure that the EHRC one was quite the defining moment as you've cast it. I think the two or three moments so there was a letter from a whole lot of um i think crucially non-jewish people of influence john le carre and anthony beaver and Joanna lumley we sort of cut through the here were people john le carre particularly such a sort of channel four news sort of john snow lefty figure that it was quite a surprise for people saying i'm not voting labor so that was a big moment i think the chief rabbi's intervention was huge uh i think that cut through to a whole lot of people who don't follow regular politics the sort of Jeremy Vine audience type people. They understand religious figures never say stuff like that. That had a huge impact. The JLM thing came relatively late in the campaign, and I would suspect that by then people's minds had been more or less made up, and partly because it had staked out, although I agree you're absolutely right, Oz, in less detail, it had been staked out by Panorama. So that notion that the Labour leadership office are meddling was already sort of known. Um, even before then. Uh, the reason why I partly say that about how late it came in the campaign is that I did do some reporting around the country where, you know, different ways. But one of the things I did was to eavesdrop on focus groups that I'd had no role in convening or moderating. So I was just listening to what came up anyway. And these are in places where there are no Jews, you know. So one was in Newcastle under Lyme, just outside Stoke, a, a seat incidentally that did switch from Labour to Conservative. And people who were obviously obviously themselves not Jewish, but knew no Jews, were nevertheless affronted by the anti-Semitism. And I think it worked on two levels. At the most mild, it was, this has been on the news for four years. What kind of leader still hasn't dealt with it? I don't even know what it is, really. But I just know that it's gone on and on and on. And any competent person, you know, a head teacher or something, if there was an issue about a leaking radiator and you were still hearing about it four years later, you'd say, they're obviously useless because it should have been dealt with. But the second level I thought was really interesting, which was, and I think it makes British Jews feel, it should make British Jews feel differently and positively about some of their countrymen, which is I think even people who don't know Jewish people very well have a very limited 
knowledge, particularly of Jewish life, but they haven't. They know that it was connected with the Second World War. They may have sort of be vaguely familiar with Anne Frank's diary, and they basically know that good people don't hate Jews. And it was as simple as that. You would just hear him say, and, you know, I heard one man say, and what's this thing with him slandering the Jews? You know, it was a very old-fashioned sort of formulation. But it meant you're a wrong'un, you know, that that's, those are bad people who think like that. They know that just because one of the defining events of modern Britain was that it stood alone against fascism in 1940. People know what side you're meant to be on. And the idea that this man just couldn't do enough to make it go away. And then the sort of emblematic moment of that was that interview with Andrew Neil. Two things, I think people who understand antisemitism were gobsmacked when Andrew Neil reads out a sentence which most people would know was antisemitic, Rothschilds control world governments. And Andrew Neil says to him, as if a preamble to a next question, can we agree that's antisemitic? And Corbyn can't agree. Right, which is the, which is all these episodes rolled into one. It's the mural that he can't see that the mural's anti-Semitic. Uh, it's the man next to him who says that Jews you know, drink the blood of Christian children, and he says You're, you deserve tea on the Commons Terrace. It was that on TV in, in you know on BBC One at seven o'clock. The leader of the opposition, who would be Prime Minister, literally can't recognise that when it's read to him. But the second piece of it was, can you apologise? And he can't. And so even people who know know nothing think. That's just not right, really. And that very, you know, w one should not be, uh, one should be wary of romanticizing one's fellow citizens. But the idea that people who are not steeped in it like us, on some level, just knew that that isn't right. And they recoiled from it. And hence the polling numbers that Adam is saying, you know, it was a factor, even if people didn't have a nuanced way. I have to say, Jewishly, I'm very relieved it wasn't the main factor. I don't think for anyone, Brexit and Corbyn's leadership in general, you know, the size of the victory, it wasn't because of that. But it played into a notion that he's a bit of a wrong'un, and all these video clips of him appearing on assorted platforms, I think did also mark him out as an obsessive uh, and even a bit of a crank um, that he hung out with these people who pursue these kind of quite obscure obsessions. But in the end, I think it was uh, it fed into a notion that he's just not in the right place. Adam Langleben, what was your experience in bringing these issues forward to the leadership and to senior staff members? So I think uh, I'd sum up JLM's experiences over the last uh, four years into two phases. The first two years, we came under immense criticism from the Jewish community because we tried to talk um, and we tried to engage openly and honestly. Uh, we tried to meet with Jeremy Corbyn. We met with his staff regularly. Um, we tried to see if this thing could work. And then it gets to a point, and actually the, the mural was the key moment, where actually it, this ain't working anymore. And actually, however much we're in, engaging in good faith um, in trying to make this better, to hold Hanukkah parties at Labour HQ, whatever else, these people are simply, they don't want to fix it, or they don't have the political will to fix it. Um, and that's what prompted us to, 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 to go ahead and say, actually, this has to be taken out of the Labour Party's hands, and this is why we have to, uh, whereby we, we think, and we've been, we were advised legally, that we have a case for the EHRC, and the rest is history. And uh, did any senior members of staff, um, you know, concede that the leadership did have a problem with anti-Semitism? Yeah, I think one senior member of staff in, in Jeremy Corbyn's office admitted to me that, that they thought Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semite, um, but they were going to try and manage it. That's astonishing. Wow.
That's amazing. This member of staff still works there. That's, um, and, and a senior Corbynite yes. member of staff. Correct. My final questions to you, Adam Langleben. What do you think Corbynism got right? What do you think the Labour Party can learn from Corbynism? What do you think the future holds for the Labour Party now? And what do you think it needs to do to reconnect with the Jewish community in particular? So I think what Corbynism got right was it allowed the left to talk about uh, left economics again, um, and as if it wasn't dirty. Like I, I'm, I'm someone who I would consider myself of being on the left of the Labour Party, or, or at least I was. Uh, I think probably people don't think of me as that now. Um, we shouldn't be averse to talking about nationalising things. Um, if if the private sector isn't working in a in a certain sector of the economy then why can't we have that conversation to talk about actually are there different models for operating this service? And I think those discussions were closed off um, during, the la- the, during the Blair years and during um, Ed Miliband's tenure broadly. And I think the only benefit really I can see, what, I think it's two actually, um, the, the only policy benefit has been the ability to talk about these, those economic issues again. In terms of the, 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 the second thing is even though the Labour Party has been infected by a number of, uh, a large number of cranks, of old white men and a few anti-Semitic grandmas, the, the vast majority of people who joined the Labour Party in 2015 are good people who want to change the world. And actually, the key challenge for the Labour Party going forward and for whoever wishes to be the next leader of the Labour Party, whoever is the next leader of the Labour Party, is to channel the energy and the goodwill and the sheer goodness in, in, in the vast majority of the half a million members to try and rebuild the Labour Party. I think, I think that is possible. I think they've been, for, for many of them, they've been radicalised. And, that, and it's a term I don't use lightly, but I think, I think that's what's happened over the last four years, radicalised to hate people or hate, hate people who've got different views to you. But actually, imagine if... If, if those people, those people's energies could be challenged away from hating your opponents or hating certain things or hating Zionists or hating whatever else, Jews, um, to actually trying to build, rebuild the Labour Party. I'd like to thank you all very much for joining us for the first episode of the series and a special thanks to my guests Jonathan Friedland, Adam Wagner and Adam Langleben for coming down today. I hope to catch all of you next week for Corbynism, the Postmortem, episode two. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the project, please head on over to my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash ozcatergy where you can subscribe for more. I hope to catch you all next week for Corbynism the Postmortem Episode 2, where we will be joined by the former Labour MP for Redcar, Anna Turley. 